Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. I heard about a big tech CEO who is at home having dinner with his family. And just in the middle of this dinner, uh, the plates just start getting up, dancing on the table, start clattering around. Broomstick comes out of the closet. It does a little shindig. Furniture starts jumping around. Everything in the apartment's going haywire. Kids are saying, oh my gosh, there's a poltergeist. We got to do something about this. Dad, what are you going to do? There's a poltergeist. He's like, there's no poltergeist. What are you talking about? They're like, Dad, look. Look all around. Look at all this stuff. How can you explain it? He's like, nothing's happening. I don't, I don't see anything there. There's nothing real there. How do you explain it, they say? He says, I don't believe in transparency. Am I supposed to respond? I don't know what a poltergeist is, so that's problem number one. Oh, man. I apologize. Pretend I said a ghost. <laughs> a ghost. <laughs> okay. That's good. I'm glad we're educating people. Um, welcome to the retort. Tom introduced us well onto the core topic of today's episode, which is transparency. Stanford reduced, released a index for transparency. Is that what, that's what they call it. And I think we disagree that it's actually about transparency. It's kind of classic example of the things that we're here to discuss and it's AI work kind of masquerading out in the real or work masquerading as research out in the real world that's somewhere between regulatory capture and just kind of bad takes so we have to kind of explain why I think Tom do you have any introductory remarks I think I should just summarize it after that yeah we are not big on the transparency index, I guess. Yeah. Uh, for some of the reasons that Nate just outlined and it does seem to be kind of both a classic case of regulatory capture, but in the kind of context of AI and the way regulatory capture can play out in AI is different than the kind of legacy ways that that played out in the 20th and 19th century. So that might be something that we should go into to clarify the grounds for our skepticism about it. Yeah, okay. I think I'll just generally start a rant about what the paper actually does. I'll try to start in substantive details, and I'll likely slowly digress into um, subjective criticism. I think everything aside, what the paper does is it creates 100 questions that are yes or no in nature, and answers them about 10 leading models from leading AI companies. So they created 100 questions, and then the index is a maximum score of 100, where the leading model is quote-unquote something like the most well-known model from an institution, and they evaluate the transparency of that, when in reality, a lot of the models that they're evaluating are actually APIs. So you ended up with things like GPT-4 being compared to stable diffusion and being compared to Bloom Z, which Bloom was an effort for result of an effort called Big Science, which was initiated by Hugging Face, but highly multi-institutional in nature. So to even call it really a Hugging Face model, it's pretty funny. And then the result generally showed that the quote unquote leading model scores were about 50 out of 100 with Llama 2 winning by one point over 
Bloom with like one point. It's actually like five points over GPT-4 with the average score being much lower, which was brought down by generally a bunch of models that no one has ever heard of, including a quote unquote Amazon foundation model and things like this. So it really looked like a report trying to gather a representative sample in a very pretty way to answer questions about data, governance, model architecture, safety of the model, blah, blah, blah. When you actually zoom into the questions, there's extreme kind of weirdness in them, which create numerical issues. So essentially, you get one point if you describe the input-output modality of your model. Maybe even two. It might be separate. So if you just say that you trained a language model, that's a point. And then there's like other questions like, what are the data used to train this model? And that is also one point, even though historically and what transparency means, it's data is constitutes way more of the relevant pipeline in machine learning. So then for by kind of averaging all of this statistics, they heavily distorted any sort of like normative definition of transparency that they went in with. And that's kind of the biggest issue. And then there are kind of funny things later on, like, okay, so transparency, I'm releasing a blog post with friends from a Luther AI with a kind of substantive technical critique of this. Uh, should come out before the podcast and one of the best sections of that blog post was titled for a long time, this paper is a bad parody of itself. It has since been toned down. We want the message to actually be received. But the paper has a lengthy limitation section where they go into all the limitations of what could happen when you detail a scorecard for transparency from a very specific and slightly unilateral set of stakeholders. And they go into all of these and the paper itself doesn't actually acknowledge any of the potential pitfalls that they actually strongly overlap with. So it's like, it's like this paper just feels incomplete. So in, in a way that is heavily lending itself to model providers, because a lot of the questions are about like tracking your users and tracking the safety of a technology, which is kind of like saying whether or not your firearm is safe based on the fact that you said you can shoot people with it. And like an open source project is not going to detail all of these things. It's going to trade a model. So the kind of two core thrusts of critique to get some structure to this conversation before we go into these rabbit holes is that like one, this transparency index is primarily a compliance index for companies providing language models as a service. And then two, it's heavily contradictory and doesn't actually reckon with the its own limitations in terms of what transparency means. Therefore, having a lot of like little issues about what models they chose, what transparency means, who could be included, and all that. And then there's kind of a third philosophical or industry-wide issue, which is irrespective of the work. But I kind of take issue to how this is publicized broadly. They had a press release and a press embargo for it. So essentially, they forwarded this work to a bunch of reporters and said, this is hot shit. And then they all published their pieces at 10 a.m. Pacific time, like right after this was published. So mm -hmm. like every major tech journalist is talking about it. And for something that was clearly like, there may have been good motivation. There, there's reasons to want this stuff. But to then like have that be the way that everyone is introduced to it and no mechanism to address any of the critiques before it's in the public eye is just very frustrating. But that's kind of irrespective of actually the technical critique. And that's more of like a distribution strategy critique. So they should be separate. That's kind of a long rant. <laughs> there's a lot there. Is it? 
fair to sum up most of what you just shared as that the transparency index is really capturing maybe somewhat arbitrary measures of corporate transparency rather than model transparency. I guess, what do you mean by corporate transparency? Is Statements that a given company has made about one of the models and about certain features of that model or why they built it or any other kind of information about it that could supply the context behind what it could reasonably be used to do or not do, which is distinct in any, I think, substantive way from transparency as a feature of the model in itself, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. So I think this is why I use the word compliance rather than transparent. Like it's a compliance index mm -hmm. with all the things like harms and tracking users and tracking costs and stuff like this rather than transparency because of the process of trying to come up with what a definition for transparency is. And I think my kind of rough definition that I start with right now in transparency is openness for the sake of like um, good actors. So like it's one thing to be open but not act in good faith. So like you could say things that are misleading and be it misconstrued as transparency. And I kind of view like the combination of sharing actual details and doing it in good faith to help kind of multiple downstream stakeholders from users and policymakers be important to what transparency actually means. Because otherwise, like you get things like the GPT-4 technical report, which scores a lot of points on this transparency index, but most of the claims are totally unverifiable. Right. And... OpenAI has had conflicts in their communications in the past where their API models were said to be using RLHF for the instruction tuning, or they were said to not use RLHF for instruction tuning or something like this, and then they came out and they actually were, or vice versa. So like they've actually said misleading things with what their different various model endpoints actually were trained on and were caught in the act of it. So like I don't think that they do this a lot, nor they mean to as a company. I think OpenAI tries to do a good job with this. And be clear, but there are other companies that could like <laughs> just do malicious things and no one would know. And I don't think that is really the spirit of transparency. Do you, I, I would love to hear if you had a definition of transparency because I think a lot of this kind of skirts that. I was a about lot, like, to. A lot of the indexes just don't actually reckon with what it should mean. I was about to bring that up. Yeah. It does seem to be at stake here that there isn't a good definition of transparency, either that the index is offering or that the academic community has coalesced on. I mean, I, I was reflecting just as you were speaking that, you know, the question in my mind, I guess, is can you have a good faith commitment to transparency in the abstract or does it always have to be grounded with respect to what is the thing? that you are being transparent about, right? We talk about these abstractions as if it's meaningful transparency, but it's if you're just deferring the object of what is being made transparent and by whom for what end, it's really not clear to me what it is that you're talking about. And that's not just vague semantically. It's also... Potentially toxic 
to the extent that using that abstraction, transparency, as if it's meaningful and something we should strive for, possibly sets up certain actors to twist the usage of the term to suit whatever kind of PR campaign or, you know, narrative about their own motivations that they can see fit because, and you didn't, I don't think even really went into the details here, but there's something like a hundred metrics that the, that the index is using to so-called measure trans. I can, I can see you guys, our listeners cannot see Nate smirk as I'm describing this, but <laughs> the, there are in fact, technically a hundred, uh, not 101 Dalmatians, but 100 metrics for transparency that inform this index. And that's why it's an index, so to speak, rather than just, I, I don't know, some kind of data dump. But the point is... Does index have to add up to 100? No, I don't think so. But an index, I think, suggests some kind of... Um, I mean, we could look at the dictionary definition, but an index is basically some kind of systematic listing of all of the relevant features of some topic, right? That's why certain books have an index at the end. Gotcha. Yeah. It's like the, the criticisms are just constantly coming back as we talk about this more. It's like with the scoring thing, another detail that they bury in their communications is that they gave the model authors an option to adjust the scores based on communicating with the authors of the index, but they didn't disclose by how much the scores changed based on those discussions. And I think that type of thing is really important because if you come and there's a third party, like we want to grade your transparency, everyone's just going to do everything that they can really to increase the score. And it doesn't seem like these are calibrated across. It says things like when there was disagreement, they when there was a disagreement in scores because two people rated every company, every model, when there was a disagreement in score, they came to an agreement via discussion rather than using disagreement as a signal which I think it is. Like I, like I think disagreement shows that like you maybe shouldn't just have zero or one in that case. Or you need different questions or different scoring. I don't know the extent of this. It wasn't really documented how much disagreement there was. But the, just like all of these things just slowly chip away at the confidence of this. So part of transparency, if we start to ground it, um, transparency is contested, Right. So, like, which features of a system are we actually talking about? Which ones do we think are most significant, salient, consequential for a particular use case? We begin to put a box around what transparency means when we start talking in that way. But different stakeholders might disagree on those things. But there's no sense from this index that there's any kind of room for that kind of deliberation that or that kind of agonism in a political sense right that kind of contestation over how like let me see if i can articulate this what i'm getting at is what would it mean for a model to be transparent enough that anybody who would want to use it could deliberate about its use right <laughs> like that's not transparency is not a scalar value in my mind yeah. For what I, the reasons I just said, and I'm sorry to say it follows from that, if you agree with me, that this index really doesn't make any sense methodologically, because that's the whole point of it, is to reduce transparency to a 0 to 100 measure. 
I kind of finally have a worldview for why I think they did this. I want to see if you think it can follow the reasoning. Okay. I'm going to tell the story as if I am a prominent institution that people listen to and I care about the world, but I'm kind of like to toot my own horn. And they saw a world where most of the leading technology was obviously not transparent. Regardless of what your definition is, the fact that it is obviously not transparent kind of disavows you the need to define your like norms norms and definitions around transparency. So they didn't need to do this because they had set out to show that everything is bad. And then they kind of were like, okay, we could actually get in contact with all of these people. So we did this and we got contact. We're like, okay, we need to organize this information somehow so it's fair across each of these models. And they created a bunch of questions. And then they saw that the results matched their hypothesis and they're like, oh, we've got to share this with the world. And without kind of understanding the scope of the reach that they have, that's kind of what I think. I like it. Just sounds so simple, but what else would they have possibly been trying to do here? Like they didn't really, they didn't start from what is transparency, but rather everything is not transparent. That does seem like the best possible good faith interpretation of this document. Yeah. They probably did or may well have seen themselves as bringing to light systematically the fact that this world is overwhelmingly opaque and not transparent. And we are showing, we are able to show with confidence the degree to which that fact is true. Now, the follow-up question is, is that okay? Is, is it not better to just write a New York Times op-ed? Well, here, so... <laughs> In my frame of better. Like, I, like, I think I would have, they would have had a better outcome doing that with respect to the things that I care about. My also argument is that Stanford as an academic... My presumption is that Stanford as an academic institution benefits from transparency and kind of the normative sense that I said, which is like openness, openness in the act of a good faith. So like sharing details in the with people in a clear manner to try to foster inclusion, growth, better understanding of safety, blah, blah, blah. Like without transparency, Stanford is going to be left behind as the technology goes to big tech companies. It's kind of my presumption. They may not see it as clearly. That doesn't seem like a hot take to me. Yeah, I think that, you know, full disclosure, let, let's let's ourselves be transparent here about this. So we both have PhDs from East Bay Community College. Uh, you know, go Bears. Go Bears. Go Bears. <laughs> we are Cal alums. Um, neither of us have degrees from South Bay Community College. Uh, we... I think it's fair for us to admit that we have a certain blue and gold tinted glasses looking at a document like this, or at least I certainly did. Um, you know, yes, Stanford is, it's funny. I actually had, there's a story. I had a, a professor in grad school. This is actually before I even was working on AI. This was back when I was in the social sciences. And there was a professor who said, um, at Berkeley, we get Vicodin from Silicon Valley, but Stanford gets heroin. We want the heroin. <laughs> we have to settle. 
Well, I think fundamentally Berkeley is too disorganized to make these kind of audacious claims. It's like Berkeley by design is like disorganized and collaborative and doesn't really have things as institutionally powerful as like the center for research on foundation models. Like they don't have as much, like for whatever reason, there's very little cultural weight on put on decentralizing, which I think is a very normal academic thing. But Stanford by being Stanford-y gets out of that. And I don't think this is the only way that you would see this, the like foundation model stuff. Like I'm sure there's other examples. I do feel having admitted and been transparent about the Berkeley thing. Um, to me, this does remind me of what is an ongoing theme of this podcast and our conversations, which is that at the end of the day, do you... Is your commitment to transparency one rooted in a technocratic impulse or a democratic impulse? If it's technocratic, something like the transparency index is either sufficient or sufficient to initiate the pro- the process of working on transparency in this scalar way. If you if your commitment is to a democratic form of transparency, then I think you're obligated to something structurally different than what this index is trying to do. And I think that's, for me, that's my way of parsing what you said about wouldn't a New York Times op-ed have been better? And I think I think there's no objective answer to that, but I think that if your commitment is fundamentally to democracy rather than technocracy, then the, it, the answer is, yeah, that would have been. It's almost funny because Anthropic is doing more work to be democratic than than Stanford is. Like Anthropic had recent work. This is I've learned led by our friend Deep that like essentially <laughs> friend of the pod, went, friend of the pod, first friend of the pod, um, went through the process of getting a thousand Americans. I think they used like a normal poll getting service, so like a polling service to get different demographics and like let them recreate the cons- a constitution that would be used like what is used in Claude, and then the like hard work that Anthropic did is actually figure out that you can A, like let them determine the variables and B, do the hard technical work to actually get the machine learning method to converge with this kind of like crowdsourced democratic value determination. And this this is interesting for a technical reason because it shows that like the values that Claude has, while they seem straightforward when they're published in a blog post, are definitely iterated in a loop where you're changing the values and seeing if the technical side converges, but now they're like going through the process of just collecting the democratic, it's you have to squint, but the democratic process of actually getting these values and just letting it converge without actually adjusting the things that they got from external humans, which is a really cool experiment. We can, we can, we'll add the link to the show notes for that blog post, but like there's very different approaches in those two things and very different acknowledgements of kind of what matters. It seems to me there's two basic commitments entailed in the transparent in the, uh, the the democracy point, both of which I see is missing from the index. So I'll just articulate what those things are. If you're committed to democracy, at a minimum, I think you either have to be committed to the possibility of dissent from any particular decision that is underway or you have to be committed to 
a robust notion of majoritarianism, majoritarian decision or majoritarian action. Uh, because democracy is the rule of the people, the rule of the many, uh, by definition. If you have a commitment to neither of those things, then you're hard-pressed to convey that whatever project you're embarking on is one that is that whose ends are democratic. And there's a debate, of course, over whether dissent or majoritarianism are more important at different moments in different ways. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go into details here, but I'm, I'm respectively drawing from the ideas of Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a 20th century Protestant theologian and political theorist on the one hand, and on the other, John Dewey, who is another very important political philosopher in 20th century America, who kind of favored these different modalities of democratic expression and identity. But my point is really just to say neither of those things is remotely in scope for the conversation that seems to be teed up by the transparency index. And the canary in the coal mine for me, or the red flag, I should say, was what Nate already said, which is the fact that companies just sort of would arbitrarily get more points if they happen to conform to the criteria for reporting that were encoded within this index. That's a kind of closed loop that, in my mind, screams of some kind of particular form of regulatory capture that is is taking off in the context of rubber stamping these models. Yeah, like to be clear, it's like this would be a classic case of regulatory capture, but somewhat unusual that it spawns out of an academic sphere. If this was actually to be distilled into policy, that link will never directly be known, but there's definitely going to be implicit links where this is a place where policymakers are looking and transparency and machine learning broadly this year is heavily under crisis. Like so many people that care about this are being swallowed up into big tech companies at large. Like another one of my friends that was considering founding a startup being an open language model research center is joining DeepMind. It's like, okay, another one bites the dust. And it's like doubly bad when any of these people are articulate. Yeah. Because like that is the trend that we're in the face of, which I think is like, I don't think I'm a first principles open sourcer. I may by necessity that the alternative is extremely scary open sourcer. So it's like, it's just, it's, that's why it's sad. Like that's the dynamic by which this landed into and probably made people that are articulate and do care about openness and transparency increasingly frustrated because it's like, we didn't need this own goal. We don't, we don't need this right now. Like, it's just a bad time. So I feel what we're seeing here, yeah, is academic capture. And it's important to articulate that, even if we don't fully have a worked through understanding of what that is, right? So as I indicated earlier, uh, we have in, uh, you know, our, our rubric of understanding terms like corporate capture or regulatory capture. And we act like those are maybe the only kinds of ways that public policy can be short-circuited by power. But that's obviously not... You okay? Nate dropped something. Yeah, I almost knocked a, I almost knocked a bug over. Something's getting captured on Nate's end. Uh, we, we act like corporate capture, regulatory capture are like, you know, some kind of like reified concepts or categories that that, you know liberal democracy is about preventing or mitigating the effects of those things. But like, no, like if you're a materialist, if, if you're just an institutionalist 
any institution is capable of capturing some other institution. It doesn't matter if it's academia capturing something else. It doesn't matter if it's deep mind poaching somebody. As long as any agent is in the position where it can hire someone to do in theory what counteracts what should actually be done in practice, that's that's capture. That's circumventing the ends of whatever other institution should really be setting policy, right? So the fact that, and I, I should clarify, I think a lot of AI ethics is kind of stuck in this moment because we are unfortunately, I'm including myself here, we are in the position of often using terms like transparency or like fairness or like accountability in ways that keep them abstract, that keep them anodyne, that keep them non-threatening because they're very rarely ever grounded in real relations between things. Things that matter to particular people or places for reasons that you don't get to choose through that game of abstraction. They're just there. They're just part of the terrain. And unless you're developing usages of those terms that speak directly to that terrain and can be used as instruments to navigate it effectively, you're, you may well be part of the problem. And we all, we're all maybe complicit in that. Or it's easy, you have to kind of police yourself and hold yourself accountable to others and to the world to make sure that you're not accidentally in this kind of dialectical way, worsening something by speaking about it in that way rather than actually bettering it. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's, it's, we, we're in this position of casting spells and using these words that anchor the media and they anchor policy. They anchor politicians. They anchor the way the public thinks it's allowed to think about this stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like, looks like we're having some networking issues, but Tom can edit this in post if he wants to. <laughs> it's, I can't help but feel that some, in some ways, this may be related to the like way that research is changing. You know, like researchers are trying to be more relevant in plenty of ways but it's hard to hijack that. It's like the foundation model center was only announced like two years ago. And, and once some ways they were ahead of their time, but they never really had their moment to sign, like soak in the sun because since they announced it, everything's just increasingly gone to big tech and like academia hasn't had a chance. So, so some of these dynamics that are kind of hard to tease at are in play. And the same goes for the AI ethics community. It's like, it's primarily driven by academic leaders uh, that frames the ways that they can actually discuss the technology and think about it. I've used this term, I think in our first episode, I used this term, the academic industrial complex to describe this dynamic. And I don't know if I really explored it, but just briefly, what I meant by that was to kind of convey the potential for this toxicity, which does not have to be deliberate. And in fact, I think the nature of it is that it is a lack of awareness of the position that people occupy when they do say or use certain terms without this kind of reflexivity, without this kind of reflection, which in a word, industry needs 
legitimacy and authority. And the academy is a convenient place to look to get that from. And the academy needs, in a word, influence and proximity. And it gets that from industry. And again, not to dunk on Stanford, but maybe slightly. <laughs> it's, it's very easy for certain spaces, certain labs, certain sometimes people to be in a position where they make this kind of toxic feedback loop start to play out, where in the name of critique, a certain kind of tacit endorsement of approach is uh, sanctified by the academy over what is being done in industry, which benefits from that and allows itself to be subject to what is really a kind of soft critique and not really a critique in the name of being perceived as more reasonable than those who will not subject themselves to that line of inquiry. And that's what I fear is going on here with the transparency index. Yeah. I mean, there's just openly like questions that lean into that. It's like, there are questions that you should just not ask anyone in this, like who is using your model and how much and where are they maybe? Like, I don't know if all of those are exactly in it, but there's essentially questions that you get docked for transparency for not knowing who is using your model. And it's like completely, like there's just actively bad questions to ask anybody. It's personal information <laughs> that should not be disclosed in the name of transparency. And then that kind of lies in like the bigger theme of how open source machine learning is misunderstood of it, which is like open source gets docked for not answering a lot of things where the assumption is that an open source project extends beyond the confines of a single company. And therefore a lot of the questions are answered in a like actual multi-stakeholder manner. And the report doesn't really take that into account. It only takes into account official communications from the leading party of the model. So the, like, that kind of structure, like, like not understanding that directly is subliminal into the entire document. And then when you end up comparing things like Meta's Llama and Hugging Face's models, or which isn't really a Hugging Face model, it's more, more people built that than Hugging Face, to GPT-4 is just like, that's what, that was like my initial thing. It's like, this just all breaks down. It's like, it's just not true. <laughs> it's not accurate if you are doing that like the assumptions about how information flows and should be assessed is just rough. Maybe this is a natural place to bring up transition to this paper that you and I and a fellow collaborator dropped this week on friend of the pod. Number two, our second friend of the pod, Tom <laughs> Zick. Yeah. This paper on not literally reinforcement learning from human feedback, but on the history of reinforcement learning and human feedback, I believe. And yeah, it's our fun title. I think it's useful, Nate, for you to maybe introduce the relevance of that paper for this conversation as it bears on transparency, because I think that paper is saying something and suggesting something meatier about transparency. Yeah. So the goal of this paper, like the strategy of this paper, whether or not it's in the content, is to increase transparency around reward models. So two-sentence summary or so of what a reward model is and why it's important is essentially 
a reward model is this learned language model that's used to provide the score in RLHF. And then in RLHF, these models people end up using. So downstream users actually use the model based on the scores assigned by this kind of other model, which is supposed to capture human preferences from some kind of aggregate data and not that well-documented data and all of these other things. So given that this system is heavily influential on kind of dictating what values are demonstrated, it seemed like a central point to kind of understand the kind of assumptions that people make about the technology broadly. But given that there's not much shared about it at all, the paper's goal is to try to paint out the arguments and kind of the potential misplaced assumptions as to why we should increase transparency around this piece of technology. So it's like essentially it's providing, I don't know, like what's the right way to provide it? It's kind of like a position paper with some kind of substantive background on the history of reinforcement learning and quantifying values that then proposes a list of questions that you should be asking when you're actually using a reward model. And if you are to be transparent, then you would like release the answers to these questions in the technical report when you are using reinforcement learning from human feedback. And it's kind of using research as seed to hope that it grows into a bigger area of work that then applies a lot of structural pressure on big companies by kind of like credibility. People join those companies that are used to asking these questions. Like more work kind of comes out showing the questions you can ask. And on like open models, they're trying to apply direct pressure by growing this area and clearing up what preferences actually are in modern chat language models to actually like increase transparency. And uh, Tom can say like we had a lot of discussions on what how to address transparency versus accountability, which is probably like the other most interesting kind of like ecosystem question when designing research these days. Yeah, we did discuss this a lot internally as we were preparing researching and preparing the paper. So I guess in a way it's of a piece with what I was saying earlier that for me, transparency is a necessary precondition for the kinds of accountability that I want there to be and that I think there need to be in order for any AI system of arbitrary capability to be robustly good, you know, to be evaluated as good. You need certain key forms of transparency at multiple points of decision. Um, we, we cite some of this work in the paper from my, from my PhD thesis about this idea, which is, you know, there needs to be a minimal kind of transparency about what are the features that this system can even attend to, what was the optimization problem at its heart, how has the interface been scoped or defined, and who are the parties to that. These are not the same. You can't collapse these dimensions into a scalar kind of axis of just data dumping or something like that. They're, they have different, there are different normative commitments entailed in each of those things. And yeah, what we're trying to do in this paper is provide a kind of working genealogy of what is reinforcement, what are preferences, how have different disciplines handled the problem of preference measurement and aggregation and definition at different points in time? What are the fissures along which they disagree or no longer have a consistent semantics for what preferences are? 
And what is the kind of process by which, in spite of those fissures, and also maybe more provocatively, maybe because of those fissures in some cases, this kind of Rube Goldberg device of RLHF has been assembled and bizarrely works sometimes uh, for reasons yeah, that... RLHF, yeah, to jump in, RLHF is like the classic computer scientist Rube Goldberg abstraction machine. And I think those pieces of technology are awesome in the technical scheme that they work, but knowing how computer science is built on abstraction, you should we should at least do the work to understand what those abstractions are when we're saying things like these models encode human values and, and, uh, with, with like with, without any like <laughs> but or anything after it. So like that's that's the kind of paper that we put out and it's pretty nerdy in scope, but people probably will find it interesting. So there are different kinds of transparency in it. For one thing, I think our paper does approach transparency more like a vector than like a scalar, that there are different kinds of transparency, different dimensions of transparency about these different concepts and how they are operationalized within a given a given large language model, for example, and the process by which it was trained or fine-tuned. And secondly, there's another nerdy distinction from social science, or rather from the philosophy of social science between diachronic and synchronic phenomena. <laughs> and uh, in a word... I, I always mix them up. I apologize for this. But what is the one where it's like a snapshot of like, let's just compare things simultaneously. And the other is, let's observe one thing or more than one thing longitudinally over time, see how the phenomena manifests in that way. And I think that mode of transparency, transparency about the way in which notions of preferences, notions of measurement, notions of aggregation, notions of observability, and obviously notions of reward, notions of signal, have been differently mobilized over time in pursuit of fundamentally opaque concepts like behavior or goal or the nature of what humans value or are striving for. Human flourishing ultimately is what's at stake here, classically speaking are now being operationalized in exciting ways by the capabilities of these new models. You know, I, I posted this, I think, when I was publicizing the paper on LinkedIn. I, it just occurred to me that there is this quote from Daniel Dennett, this famous philosopher, where he says, um, AI makes philosophy honest. What he meant by that was that basically the act of trying to build an AI system requires you to be very concrete in your use of certain metaphors for how the brain works. And also, it requires you to be willing to be falsified, because if your ideas don't work, that means maybe you've got something wrong about how intelligence works. So that's what he meant by the fact that AI keeps philosophy honest. And I think that maybe provocatively what's happening with RLHF and the associated methods is that it might do something similar for social science, that there are key concepts at the heart of sociology, economics, political theory behavioral science, management science, that have gone uninterrogated and unfalsified just because there wasn't really the need or the ability to do so. But now we have systems that can work for reasons that even those disciplines would struggle to understand. And as a social scientist, that's very exciting because it means that beyond just making the models themselves more transparent, we're actually making our 
own concepts more transparent, more lucid, more contoured, more def more given more definition, given more resolution, thanks to what these systems can do. So that's a very exciting time to be in. I don't know. Is that the right place to end? I I agree. That was I, a, that was a peroration on my part. Yeah, I feel I feel satisfied. It's like. Essentially, AI and large language models is all downstream from the internet. So it's like us getting more data is making science real in a different way across many different landscapes, which is obviously important. The last kind of call I'll make to the listeners still going is that we'll, we'll include the link to Jatendra Malik's original OG um, critique of the foundation models at the foundation model kickoff meeting itself. It's really great. We need that for the Foundation Model Transparency Index. Probably happens somewhere. And probably TBD if we pod next week. I haven't told Tom this, but I'm starting my new job and my schedule is a gigantic Swiss cheese. It's pretty funny. Mm. Someone just went in and scheduled one-on-ones like every 30 to 45 minutes for the entire week. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> if you insist. And it's like, I'm just going to be sitting there in an office and people are going to come rotate through and be like, hey, I'm the next one. It's like it's like a perfect from there's three days where 9 a.m. to noon is actually a perfect checkerboard mm -hmm. where every 30 minutes is on off and the next day you start 30 minutes later so it's actually my calendar is literally a checkerboard that's pretty funny so tvd <laughs> if there's the right slot to record something but thanks a lot for listening we'll share the links rate our podcast if you can or reach out with any feedback so the retort will again. return yeah. Bye, everybody. Persevere. Bye.